Greetings in the Lord Jesus. Good to be back again. Maybe one other prayer request you could think about this week is we're heading for Texas come Friday. I'm to preach three times there, one on marriage, once on family, and once uh, more youth topic type thing. So to Glenn Lehman's former congregation actually is where we're going. <clears throat> All right, if you want to turn, you may turn to the Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start there this morning. I wrote my title on the board, The Spirit of Jesus. started thinking about this this week at a particular time during the week when I was thinking about what would Jesus do, or in this particular case it was what wouldn't Jesus do, how would he respond in a given situation? And you'll notice it's a lowercase s, which you don't do in titles, but I did it in this title because I wanted you to think about it. I'm talking about the spirit, the way he goes about it, the way, and why talk about Jesus' spirit unless it has something to do with us, by the way. I think you understand that. We want to be like him. And, and we all know, I think we know what I'm talking about, the, the spirit in which somebody does something. How do you tell that? Well, their actions, their words, their responses to situations, their reactions, same as responses, I guess, relationships, the way people relate to other people, attitudes. And I really like the Spanish way of spelling attitudes, by the way. That word act at the beginning always makes me think about what attitudes really are. You see, it in my, you see them in actions. They pronounce it a little different, too, but anyway. And so I was thinking about Jesus and his spirit, the, the, the way he lived, the way he related. I thought, okay, let's just start in at Matthew and see what we find. So we won't go through the whole Gospels. I realized right away that wouldn't work. It would be a whole lot more than we would get to. But we know a good bit about our Lord Jesus, and so let's think about it. Well, okay, so I got to Matthew and, and immediately thought, oh, okay, well, even before he was born, God gave us some clues about what this man, what his life would be like. He's born to a virgin, an unknown virgin. Joseph and Mary were unknown people. They were from the wrong side of the tracks. They were from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, according to the promise, but still came back to Nazareth and lived there, grew up there. And I'm not quite sure. Nazareth might have been sort of like, you know, the white trash part of town. Probably not the black part of town, but at least the white trash. Well, okay, we don't call people that, but you know what I mean. Okay. Wrong side of the tracks, anyway. His, his birth had this overshadowing of a suspicion of fornication. We aren't born of fornication, they told him one, one time. As, and I don't know if they were implying that he was or not, but, well, Mary was pregnant, and they weren't married yet, and okay. 
fleeing into Egypt before he's two years old. Remember, this is God's son. What's going on here? God's trying to tell us something, I think. Okay, well, these aren't his nature, his spirit as such. They, to me, they look like clues that there's something different about this man than what you expect. He shall be called a Nazarene from Nazareth. And I've wondered, Joseph and Mary, pretty often, I think, probably had to remember some of the things they'd been told by the angel, things that Simeon and Anna had told them, the promises about this child. And I, well, it says in Luke, Mary pondered these things. She was a thinker, and she had them in mind, and I can imagine she wondered. And maybe she remembered that part about a pierce, a sword shall pierce your own heart also. All right, well, Matthew chapter 3, you find Jesus coming to John the Baptist. John is out by the river preaching repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. Get rid of those sins. And here comes Jesus, verse 13. Fourteen, John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so, or allow it to be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Jesus had no sin. He had no cause to repent. He didn't need baptism. Totally unnecessary from our point of view. And yet Jesus said, let's do it. It's the right thing to do. And God was pleased. The last verse there in the chapter, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So here was a man. He didn't need to do it. But he knew God wanted him to, so he did. Chapter 4, verse 17, he starts preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A few verses later, he starts calling followers. So here's a man, the Son of God, on earth, calling a following. And he calls fishermen. Fishermen? <laughs> What's going on here? Okay, well, he gets famous. You get to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Jesus went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness. Verse 24, and his fame went throughout all Syria. They began bringing him people. So he's getting to be known, this Jesus, whoever he is, whatever he is. And you have great multitudes following him in verse 25. And so, chapter 5, he gives his first sermon, or, I mean, I don't know if it was his first, but I think for us it is somewhat the, the, the manifesto of the kingdom. This is it. This is the Constitution. This is what he came to preach. This is what he came to tell us. And what does it tell us about Jesus? And so we start with the Beatitudes, those first seven or eight verses. And I'll admit, I got bogged down there a little bit. <laughs> Do these describe Jesus? They describe people in his kingdom. Yes, I think they do. Just think about them. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you give me an example from Jesus' life where he exhibited poorness of spirit? Poorness of spirit is a little hard for us to get a hold of, I know. All right, Brother Gerald. He washed his disciples' feet. Okay, he washed his disciples' feet. And I, my mind went further than that. He was, I mean, they, they set him up, put a purple robe on him, crowned him with thorns, slapped him in the face, and he never answered a word. And the Son of God. Poorness of spirit. I'm not important. Something else is important. Well, when you think about that, what was important to the Lord? Don't answer that now. Just. But keep it in mind. Well, blessed are they that mourn. When did Jesus mourn? Give me any. Pardon? All right, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Well, he was going to raise him from the dead. Why did he weep? <laughs> he was human. It was a time to weep. Go ahead, Gerald. All right, so here he is. Coming into Jerusalem, he's looking over the town, and all of a sudden, there he is crying. I mean, okay, so last night we went to bed, and my wife laid there and cried. That's not unusual. Women do that, okay? Uh, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't tell on her. She's tired, and it's just been a rough life lately. And she said she didn't exactly know why, and I was pretty sure it wasn't anything I'd done this time, and she said it wasn't. So anyway, okay. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus... The Son of God. Here he is looking at Jerusalem and all of a sudden he's crying and saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have taken you and brought you under my wings like a, like a mother hen. Blessed are they that mourn. You cried lately? What about? Well, one of the first things we probably ought to cry about is our own sins and our part in them. But anyway, okay. Jesus was a crier. Blessed are the meek. So where did Jesus ex exhibit meekness ever? What is meekness anyway? Meek as a mouse? The, the definition that I have come to, to like for meek is, is just simply obedient. When God says jump, I ask how high on the way up. That's meekness. I don't let self get in the way or anything like that. When we know the Lord Jesus, he said, it's the right thing to do. I'll do it. I do always those things that please the Father. Always. Never those things that please myself. This was his spirit. And I didn't say it. But I think we understand that the small spirit <laughs> was the way it was because of the large spirit, the capital, the Holy Spirit. He had the, he he was totally full of the Holy Spirit. And I haven't said it, but I don't want to forget it along the way. We too have the Holy Spirit, and we can be just as full of Him as we would like to be by our choice. 
Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I looked at that one and I thought, well, did Jesus need this one? Okay. To do what was right. So you're saying that righteousness is more than just uh, some right standing with God. He wanted to do what was right. Is that what I want to do? Well, yes, that was his spirit. That's why he could say, I do always those things that please the Father. What? Did that take some effort on his part? Did it take some hunger and thirst? Go to the garden. Father, if it be possible, let this pass from me. But he knew it wasn't possible, and so he did it anyway. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Was Jesus merciful? Sure. Was he? <laughs> okay, well, so, sometimes he spoke rather strongly, okay, when there were men who were righteous or claimed to be righteous and, and the leaders of the Jews and they did wrong. He had some strong words for them. But even that was merciful. They needed to hear it, right? But the woman taken in adultery, was he merciful? Well, he told her to go and sin no more. But all in all, the way he treated that lady was the mercy shown through. We might not call her a lady. But anyway... <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart. Purity of heart, purity of motives. Why do we do what we do? Why did he do what he did? Well, and think about that. We want to try to we want to try to boil this down to the what was the one basic thing that made Jesus' spirit what it was in his life. We want to try to do that after a while. And if uh, it seems like I don't have this sermon in real good order, that's true, I don't. We're just kind of, I want you to help me through it some. Uh, think about the Lord Jesus and his spirit and the way he related to people, why he did it that way, and what that means to us, how should we relate? So let's... Uh, well, let's just go on through here, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Well, blessed are they that are persecuted. Oh, no, there's the peacemakers. Need the peacemakers for sure. Was Jesus a peacemaker? I came not to bring peace on the earth. Didn't he say something like that? He 
and yet he brought peace to many, many people. We've talked about that rest. My peace, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. It was a peace for the truth. Okay. And he had disciples that uh, kind of got into little arguments sometimes. I'm greater than you are. <laughs> I deserve this seat and that seat. And he set them straight, didn't he? In a peaceful way. His teachings to us, by the way, uh, promote peace and tell us how to do it. Our responses to other people's lack of peace, <laughs> let's call it that for now, can make a big difference in whether we bring peace to them, to the brothers that they might be, I mean, within the brotherhood, however. So anyway, okay. So you go in through this lot, through this this manifesto of the kingdom, the first few chapters here, chapters 5, 6, and 7, verse 17, he says, hold on, I didn't come to destroy the law. We talked about that some in our lesson. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill. He's not a destroyer. Rather, he came to bring in real righteousness, and you could go to verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Were the scribes and Pharisees righteous? Well, they were self-righteous. <laughs> if you'd asked them, they'd have said, yep, that's us, we've got it nailed down. Oh, we might fail once in a while. We take care of it, and we're all right. We're just okay. We've got the answers. And Jesus said, your righteousness has to pass that by far. Did his? Well, yes, obviously. He didn't have any faults that he had to throw into the mix like we do. So anyway. Verses 21, 22, anger. You shall not kill. Jesus said, you shall not be angry. Was Jesus ever angry? Once or twice, yeah. You find him a little angry at some of those men and showing it, by the way. But never in any kind of a self-centered way, which 99.3% of the time is the way our anger is. It's because something I don't like. Probably more than that, actually. Uh, there's a, and I think there is there is a, a natural something that rises up in us when we see somebody oppressing, mistreating someone else. That's normal, and it does rise, raise up something that could be called anger. I think maybe a righteous anger, but that doesn't mean we act on it in an unrighteous way. So anyway, okay, no anger. Here's a man. He's not a brawler. He's known for self-restraint. And, and that was one of the words, I, 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 as I tried to work on 
on what, how do I describe Jesus' spirit? Well, that was one I came up with, self-restraint, self-control. Well, verses 23 and 24, you're bringing your gift to the altar, and you remember your brother has something against you. Go take care of it. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other, was the way Paul said it. Kind of wimpy, isn't it? You can't just go and worship if you know your brother has something against him. You have to go take care of it. Yeah, Jesus was a little wimpy, wasn't he? He wouldn't fight back. He let him hit him. He let him say nasty things about him. He was quiet. No, it wasn't wimpy. <laughs> but there was something about his spirit that shone through there. Verses 25 and 26, the same kind of thing. Agree with your adversary quickly on the way. Well, no, that's not the way it's done in our world. Stand up, fight for your rights. Win this battle. Verses 27 to 30, you have adultery, looking on a woman to lust. Not even a hint of allowing that in your heart. You contrast that to society today. Verses 33, 30, down to 37, don't swear. Say yes, say no. <laughs> say yes, say no, mean it. You don't need to try to back it up. You don't need to support it. You just say yes, say no, and mean it. Verses 38 down to 42, don't. Payback wrongs. Jesus showed us that perfectly. Somebody forces you to go a mile, if that Roman soldier forces you to go a mile. When you reach the mile marker, say, I'll take it another one. Somebody takes your coat, give him the cloak too. Be a giver, enter. Be a giver. And one of our readers, uh, lower grades, there's a story about a giver, enter. You want to be happy? Learn to be a giver, enter. <clears throat> you want to have a spirit like Jesus? Learn to be a giver, enter. Well, that's not the way it works in society today. It's not the way it works normally. Verses 43 down to 48. Love hateful people. Those who hate you. Return good to them. Pray for them. Salute them, even. Don't ignore them. You go into chapter 6, the first, all the first 18 verses or so, almsgiving, praying, fasting. He says, don't 
do things for show. Don't do these religious things for show. I'm not sure they're all religious exactly, but anyway, it could be. Do them secretly, privately. I get the idea he's saying uh, be careful not to do it for show even because the reward comes when you don't get comments about it from others. Verses 14 and 15. Right after the Lord's Prayer. Forgive. Just forgive. Did Jesus ever hold a grudge? You suppose he struggled to forgive? You've got the blindfold on, you've got this thorn on your thorn crown on your head, and you're smashed in the face, and they're making fun of you. He was a man. He had red blood, it was flowing some of it. You think he didn't have to control his spirit at a time like that? Of course he did. Just forgive. Well, let's see. Down in verses 19 to 24, your treasures. Choose you this day whom you will serve, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Who will you serve? God or mammon? God? Self. Who did Jesus serve? How much did he carry with him? Well, Judas carried the pocketbook for the group, apparently. But he said, I don't even have a place to call my own to lay my head. And that kind of leads into the rest of that chapter 23 down through 34. Don't worry, trust. Don't worry, trust. Seek. God's kingdom first. Did Jesus ever worry? Nobody's nodding. Anybody shaking their head? <laughs> now we got at least one. All right. Jesus didn't worry. Why not? I came from the Father. I know the Father is with me. I do always his will. I don't have to worry, he could have said. All right. Who are you? Is he your father? Has he promised to take care of you? Well, then why, sorry, do you worry? Why do I worry might be the bigger question. Hmm. Does worry affect your relationships ever? And so you've got a big problem this week and it's weighing upon you and does it affect the way you relate to your brother, your sister, to people, wherever you meet and the, the, well, does it, does it have a, a reflection on when they look at you, the kind of spirit they think you have? Ouch. I'm, I'm preaching to myself, okay? Just hang on. <laughs> you take it too. 
Hmm. I mean, okay, so we talk about people, oh, he has a joyful spirit, or we might say he has a critical spirit, or he's a little bit gloom, gloomy-spirited. Uh, and that's what we're talking about partly here. What kind of spirit did Jesus have, and what kind of spirit ought we to have of people to be seeing in us? Are we to be like Jesus? Paul says yes, okay, I agree, we are. <laughs> should we want his kind of spirit? <clears throat> sure, we should. Well, okay. Chapter 7, first few verses, don't be critical. As I looked at those few verses, the beam in your own eye just might be the critical spirit that led you to see the speck in his. Could that be possible? Verse 6. Interesting verse. Learn to be quiet when it's appropriate. And be interesting to have a discussion about verse. We don't have time, but that Jesus held his peace a number of times because it was the right thing to do. And I'm not sure if that all applies to that verse or not. That's one for you to think about. <clears throat> it's appropriate sometimes to be quiet. Well, verses seven down through twelve. Just ask and trust and receive. Ask, trust, receive. Why is it, why should we be surprised when God answers a prayer just so plainly? Anyway, and yeah, I know we do it sometimes. We are surprised sometimes. But you look at these verses, 7 down through 11, Shouldn't that just be a normal part of life? We ask God for things we know are his will, and he gives them. For one thing, they're not self-centered. They are for others. They're for his church. And, and I often think about this at morning devotion to TLP. They're always asking for testimonies on Monday morning. And, and pretty often the ones I've got are ones I can't talk about because they're church problems I've been praying about and the Lord took care of it and well but you can't just give a lot of detail okay uh, but God answers my prayers really he does well not always does he do it the way I think he should and sometimes I get surprised too in how he does it and but does he answer your prayers well he should be he is, if you're praying in faith and trusting. But I'm not sure that always means in our testimony meetings we have to be saying so. But anyway, trust, receive. Did God answer Jesus' prayer? I'm sure that, that Jesus regularly saw his Father doing the things he asked him. Verse 12 live to bless others and that was the story of Jesus life 
whatever you would like done to you, do to them. Do it just because the Lord Jesus told you to. There may be nothing spiritual in it at all. Quote spiritual anyway. Just simply, it's a good thing to do. Do it. If you'd enjoy it done to you, treat them that way. Uh, that will help you cultivate a Christ-like spirit, by the way. Verses 13 and 14, keep an eye on the road. If it feels like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel must be true after all, look out. Maybe there's a problem on your road, for example. Verses 15 to, oh, I don't know, 20 anyway. Know that the proof of any disciple is fruit. Know that the proof of you is fruit. Do men gather figs of thorns? And, well, that kind of goes down through verse 23, maybe. And then the last couple of verses, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Was Jesus happy? Was he a joyful person? Was he ebullient, effervescent, bubbling? Well, no, we wouldn't say that. Was he joyful? Yes, he was. And we use those words sometimes of people's spirits. Was he sober? Okay, that word has a connotation nowadays we don't like quite so well. But yes, I think he was sober. <laughs> uh, and I was just trying to think of different words we could use to describe a person's spirit. And so anyway, let's keep going. So we're into chapter 8. These first few, oh, I don't know, 18 verses or so, you have Jesus just going around teaching and healing. Verse 18, he has great multitudes following him again. And what does he do? He says, let's go to the other side. <laughs> let's get out of the crowd. I didn't get this looked up, but I thought about it. Jesus said, you all have a problem because you receive honor of men. And it appears to me like Jesus was careful <laughs> to try to stay away from receiving honor from men. That was part of his spirit. Oh, and there you have it in verse 20. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And so you have in the next few verses these men coming to Jesus and saying, I'll follow you. And notice how bluntly he speaks to them. <laughs> that was one of them. 
I don't even have a place to lay my head. Another one says, I need to go bury my father. And Jesus said, you come follow me. Let the dead take care of him. Such answers. Whoever heard of trying to get disciples that way? Do you ever have somebody saying, I want to be a Christian, and you tried to talk them out of it? I did. Sort of, anyway. I just wasn't convinced he meant it, and I, was, I worked at him pretty hard. And he did finally pray, but I, sorry, I still doubted a little, and I think it proved itself in time, but uh, tried to help him count the cost and see it realistically, and I'm not sure he ever, I don't think he ever did see it. But anyway, Jesus <laughs> said, hold on, this isn't what you think it is. You better look at it realistically. Well, let's see, we could just keep, I'll skip over a few things here. Down in the latter part of the chapter, 28 to uh, 34, you have coming into the country of the Gergesenes, the pigs, and the people said, get out of here. We don't want you in our area. The Son of God. Well, he cost them somebody a lot of money. 2,000 pigs is a lot of money, any way you look at it. Chapter 9, verse, can't read my writing, 9-13, okay. Verses 10 and 13, you have him sitting down, calling, calling Matthew in verse 9, and he sits down and eats with them. Sinners, mind you, not the high-class righteous people, but the low-class people that everybody knows <laughs> need help, which is exactly what Jesus said. They're the ones who need the help. Chapter, well, in that, later in that chapter, he healed two blind men down in verse 30, their eyes were open, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Don't tell people. Well, part of the reason was he didn't want a crowd following him. But again, <laughs> well, they didn't listen to him. They disobeyed, and I've often wondered <laughs> how he viewed that. I mean, after all, he had just given them their sight. <laughs> a little hard to think that they wouldn't go tell. But anyway. <clears throat> a little later in the chapter, the very end, he'd been teaching, verse 36, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted or scattered abroad, the sheep having no shepherd. He cared about the people. He didn't care about himself. He cared about them. He was tired. Well, another time you see this more clearly. But anyway, he cared about them. Chapter 10, he calls the 12. In the first few verses, just 12. Here's a man, the son of God, coming to bring a message to earth. And he calls 12 men, kind of a motley crew, fishermen, tax collector, a zealot, 
a member of a radical party, and 12 common men. He tells them later, 9 and 10, he says, I'm sending you out. Well, actually, it's next number of verses. Don't take gold, don't take silver, don't take brass in your purses. Just go, like I go. In verse 16, he says, I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Look out for men. They're going to deliver you up for punishment. Don't worry about that. I'll tell you, my spirit will tell you what to say. Your, your father's spirit will tell you what to say. Your brothers will deliver brother to death. Parents, children, you'll be hated of all men for my sake. Verse 24, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. They've hated me, they'll hate you. And he says lots of other things in that chapter. Go down to verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. If you find your life, seek to find your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. Did he live that way? How did that affect his spirit? <laughs> the way... He related to everyday things, everyday people. Chapter 11. And so John the Baptist hears about Jesus. John the Baptist sitting in prison rotting. And uh, apparently he had some doubts now. And he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the one? Or should we look for another? And remember, John had so confidently said early on, this is the one, and announced it to everyone. And so I think he must have been pretty low. And Jesus did some miracles, and then he pointed out to John's disciples and says, you see what's happening? Blind receive sight, captives are released, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, and dead are raised. And blessed is he, Whosoever shall not be offended in me. A word for John. John sat in prison. Didn't Jesus care about him? You'll be blessed if you don't take offense at me. And I, I thought about this. You know, I have some convictions, and I don't feel very good to try to press them on someone else. And. It's easy for me to say, yep, God will take care of me and, 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 and I'm willing to give my all to the Lord. But then to tell John, well, this is the way you have to do it, that comes a little harder. <laughs> Don't take offense at me. Don't take offense at the Lord. Just do what he says. Do I have that kind of faith? Well, anyway. The end of the chapter. Come unto me, all ye that labor. And they're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. All right, we could keep going. You know Jesus' life. You know the way he lived, the way he died, the way he suffered. 
what's the bottom line here? Why, what is it that made Jesus the kind of person he was, that gave him the spirit that he had, that, that, that he exhibited <laughs> the spirit, the small spirit, the lowercase spirit that he exhibited and that people saw in him. You know, I've, I pondered that and you know, we, can, we could go a lot of different directions we could say he did not live for self, right? Yeah, that's right. He wanted to please God, yes, that's right. He loved, that's right. But to, to bring it right down to what is the, the bottom line of why Jesus had the spirit that he had, We could say he knew why he was here, he had a job to do, so he did it, yes. He came to save that which was lost. And, and I'm not sure I've got it totally to the bottom yet, but as, as I thought about it, I keep coming back to, I do always those things that please my Father. I do always those things that please him. I was sent of the Father, I love him, I do his will. And we can say the same. We're sent of the Father. We want to do His will. We can make it our goal to do always those things that please Him, to respond, to have the kind of spirit, the kind of humility. Well, humility was another thing I thought about that we could maybe talk about as to where His spirit comes from. Yes, that's part of it. That's where ours will come from. Should we want the spirit of Jesus? Should we want to exhibit the same? We should. Is it possible to experit, to exhibit the spirit of Jesus? No, <laughs> not on our own. If we abide in him and he in us, well then yes, I think it is. Not that we'll do it perfectly, but God give us that spirit. Let's have a song. Good morning, everyone. We're going to go back to the Gospel of Mark this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 12. <clears throat> we have, we're going to look this morning at one of the central foundational texts of the Bible, but as foundational as it is, many Christians and many who call themselves Christians are either missing it or missing the wonder of what it means and how it truly transforms our lives. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12 verses 28 through 31 to start. This is what being a follower of Jesus is all about. So, here in Mark chapter 12, I'll start reading at verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, 
The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So for a little context, this is happening on, I think it would be the Tuesday before Jesus was arrested. So here we are on Tuesday, and on Thursday, Jesus will be arrested. On Friday, he will be dead. And all of that comes out of the groups of people working against him. And in chapter 11, we have the chief priests and scribes and elders coming to Jesus, then Pharisees and Herodians. And in this chapter up in verse 18, we had the Sadducees coming to Jesus. And now we have one of these scribes coming to Jesus. Seems like people were maybe disputing or debating. There was some conversation going on here. And this scribe is seeing that Jesus is answering them well. And so he asks Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And we read this scribe's question, and maybe we start to think of the Ten Commandments. And, well, which of those is the greatest? Or maybe we even start to ponder all the details of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The um, tradition of the rabbis, by this point, had already identified uh, 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible. They identified 248 commands that were positive, do this, and 365 commands that were negative, don't do this. And they had classified them. Some of them were light commands, uh, less, less demanding and others were heavier commands with more severe uh, repercussions for disobedience. And I, I didn't take it in, in my studying to, to be that they had ranked them 1 through 613, but more kind of groupings of commands um, of those 613 that they had identified. Well, over here's some that are well, you kind of ought to do, and over here are some that, yeah, you really ought to do, and over here are some that you have no option but to do that sort of a, a ranking or categorization. And so he is observing Jesus and observing that Jesus is answering well. He asks, what is the most important command? I suspect the scribe had his own idea of the accuracy of the official rankings. Um, he probably knew which of those rankings he agreed with and which ones he wasn't so sure about. We tend to do that. Um, and when this scribe asks Jesus, it, it seems like he's somewhat maybe asking Jesus to declare himself. He's, he's trying to see where does Jesus stand on this. Jesus answers him with what is known as the Shema. He doesn't give a new commandment here, but he quotes from the Old Testament, from the law, from probably one of the best-known passages of the Old Testament. 
It's a quote from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. If you were to walk into someone's home in the days of Deuteronomy, these are the verses you would find on the wall. Um, people would even wear these verses on themselves. This passage was central. This passage was everywhere in Judaism in the day of in the days of Deuteronomy. This confession was recited by every devout Jew morning and evening. The only difference in Mark 12 is Jesus adds um, an extra phrase in there. Here we have your heart, soul, strength, and mind in Mark 12. Um, but the point is the same. In Deuteronomy, we only have three phrases. The point, though, is consistent. Love God with all. We have the word all four times in here. This is the most important commandment. Then Jesus continues. He doesn't just stop with one. He gives number two. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is also an Old Testament quote. Leviticus 19.18. God says this in his law to his people. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But now, for the first time in history here in Mark 12, we have Jesus putting these two commandments from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 side by side. Love God with all you are and all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And we'll, we'll come back to these verses and ponder them a bit more and consider how they are at the foundation of the Bible and the foundation of life. But first, I want to continue here in Mark 12 for a couple of verses um, and, and look for a moment at what, what happened after Jesus said this. So here in Mark 12, reading again at verse 32, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Up to this point, I don't know if we have any case of a scribe saying, rabbi or teacher, you're right. Um, at least not other than maybe to trap Jesus or to bait him. But here it seems like this man is getting it. Maybe he was sent to trap Jesus. That's always my suspicion when I see a, a, a hot shot of those days coming up to Jesus. Um, there's, there's always a, a suspicion on my part, well, this person's here to trap him. Um, I don't know that that's the case here. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I've tended to think of him lumping in with those who... We, we have cases where Scripture says, basically, this big shot was tempting Jesus and said X, Y, Z, or asked ABC. Um, but in this case, we just have verse 28, where it seems like he observes Jesus having good answers to the questions that were being knocked around in this conversation. And maybe he just asks a curiosity or a truly truth-seeking question. He could be trying to measure up Jesus and see if Jesus lines up with 
what he understands the commandments of God to really hang on, or it could be that he wants to know this is a wise person, this is a wise teacher, and maybe he wants his mind opened up. I don't know. Whether he came with an intent to trap or even asked in an attempt to find where Jesus didn't or did line up with his belief or the beliefs in the common teaching of the day, we have him at the end of the encounter saying something like, you may be right. And as far as I can tell, this is the only record in the Gospels where a scribe is pictured as favorably disposed to Jesus. We have... um, I guess we would have a Pharisee or two. You would have people like Nicodemus who, who were. But this, this is the only account I could find of a scribe favorably um, inclined toward Jesus. And the next verse is the only place I could find in the Gospels where Jesus commends a scribe. And I picture the, the powerful elite of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the Sadducees, or the Herodians like we had in chapter 11 even, whether they heard about it later or whether they were around in person for this um, conversation, I like to ponder what their thoughts were to have a scribe say to Jesus, I think you're right. And to have Jesus say, I think you're close. Um, anyway, that's that's an interesting mental picture. But the last phrase of verse 34 makes me think they pretty much went into kind of a, a mayday mode, said no more questions, it's not doing us any good, it's getting dangerous. And so they they weren't willing to have the questions go on anymore. What was it in what Jesus said that seemed to win the scribe over and, and, and shut everyone else down? What Jesus said in 29, 30, 31 summarized the whole Bible and the whole purpose of life in three verses. In Matthew's account, Jesus added on these two commandments, depend or hang all the law and the prophets. All of God's word hangs on these commandments. And they are interesting. Think about this. The most important commandment is to love God with all you are and all you have. Well, who is giving that command? (coughs) Ultimately, ultimately, It's God, right? God the Father in Deuteronomy, God the Son here in Mark, God incarnate, God in the flesh. So God is commanding everyone, including you and me, to love God, to love himself. The most important thing you can do in your life, God says, is love me. And not just can do in your life, but must do in your life. This is a commandment. God says, you must love me. And in our human minds, this can raise some questions. This sounds self-centered for God to command us to love him. And is it love if it has to be commanded? Isn't true love felt and not forced? Is love an obligation or an affection? Is love something we want to do or is love something we have to do? And if JP were here, he might say yes to those seemingly multiple choice questions, and he'd be right. Something that bothered me as I read this passage a few times and pondered and studied is how quickly I can have those thoughts. But more concerning was how quickly I waved the thoughts away without engaging with them. If we're going to feel the weight 
and the wonder of what these verses mean for our lives, we need to hold them a little closer and dig a little deeper. If I gloss over those kinds of thoughts, do I also gloss over the depth of the meaning of the commandments? So let's think about these commands and consider some basic questions. I have four we're going to consider this morning. One, let's ask who is giving these commandments. We've already said God is, but let's be more specific. Let's, let's dig a layer deeper. The one who gives these commands is God, who is the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving, creator of all and Lord over all. And that's a full sentence. We don't have a we don't have time in this in this message to unpack a whole theology or understanding of God. We don't have the capacity in a whole lifetime to unpack all the knowledge of God. But it doesn't mean we don't do any unpacking. We need to realize who is giving this command, who God is. At the start of the Bible, we have, in the beginning, God. He is the only. There is one God, the only sovereign. So sovereign, meaning independent, self-governing, authoritative being in the universe. He's infinitely holy in all of his attributes. He's without error, and he is without equal. He is extremely satisfying. Everything that is beautiful and powerful and peaceful and joyful and just, all of that emanates from God. He is perfectly loving. God is love, Scripture says. He defines love with his very being. He's the creator of all things, including people. Everything and everyone has its... its its genesis, its beginning, its source in God. And he is Lord over all things, meaning he rules and reigns over everything and everyone. This is who is giving these commands. So question number two then, who is receiving these commands? Who is God giving these commands to? And we know the answer is us who are all created by God in the image of God to experience and enjoy relationship with God. And again, that's a packed sentence, but think about what it means. I want to read a couple familiar verses from Genesis 1. If we are the ones receiving this command from God, we need to see that relationship between us and God. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 27... Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created us, unlike anything else in creation, unlike fish or the birds or livestock or or Anything else, insects, mountains, stars, plants, bacteria, whatever you can think of that exists in creation, God created us, unlike any of those things, in his image. 
God has created you and me in his own image, like him, so that we, unlike anything else in creation, enjoy relationship with him. And this is... This is amazing. This is awe-inspiring if we even start to grasp it. The purpose we have, the purpose you have, is immense. And so easily we, so easily I, lose sight of it. God created, made, formed, fashioned. God himself formed you in the image of God. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you see the image of a being created in the image of God with the purpose of serving God and experiencing God and enjoying God. And don't forget who God is here. We talked about a little bit of our understanding of God and who he is and his attributes. We've been created to have a relationship with the sovereign, holy, satisfying, perfectly loving, creator of all, Lord of all. Think about the meaning that gives to your life. This is who you are. From the very beginning and the very fibers of your being, this is who and what you are. Third question, why? Why does God give these commands to us? And why, and, and not just these commands, but why for all kinds of commands? Why does God tell us what to do? And the answer the Bible gives from the very beginning, we see that God is not only rightly as, I mean, it's logical, it's right as creator for him to direct the creature, but we also see I should have stayed there in Genesis. We also see God wants us to experience our true fullness in him. He wants us to see that God is our highest good and our greatest joy. And that's actually the title I have at the top of my notes. God, our highest good and greatest joy. God over and over makes it clear he desires for us to experience our fullness in him that he makes available and wants us to experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. Where's the source of that? In God himself. He wants us to taste and see that he is good. See, living the good life means something else in God's estimation than it does to those who have it as a, a bumper sticker philosophy of life. Living the good life. God does have for us a, a path for living the good life. It just looks very different than what we usually think of when we see that phrase. Because of the perversion of the idea, we, we maybe hesitate or shrink back from the reality that God does want us to experience a good life, the good life. Of course he wants us to live the good life, but he needs us to have the correct view of what the good life is. God in his love desires us to experience that greatest good and have that highest, that, that, that greatest joy. I said, from, I said we see from the beginning of the Bible that God lovingly desires that for us. 
in Genesis 1, right after what we read a bit ago about being made in his image, we have some commands. Genesis 1:28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So we have God blessing man and woman here and telling them how to, giving them a picture of the the fruitful life. Um, And then in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Does that sound like God wants to make life miserable for man and woman? No. This is God saying, I'm giving you of every tree in the garden to eat except for one, the one that will bring death. And I'm telling you this so you won't eat it, so you can live. And in this, we have the start of the story that rolls through the ages with God giving commands to his people, not whimsically, not maliciously, but for their good. And some other examples that show this point in Deuteronomy 6. Um, Deuteronomy means second law or, or the recounting of God's commands. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 24 and 25, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. For our good always, that he might preserve us alive. Jeremiah 32, verses 39 through 41. Jeremiah 32, verse... Actually, no, I want to start at verse 38. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. What a picture we have there of a God who wants good for us and good for our children after us. What a statement for God to say, I rejoice in doing good for you. God lovingly desires your highest good, your greatest joy, And consider that when you consider the specifics of his commands in your life. What if God didn't rejoice in this? What if God didn't desire this? What if the only sovereign, all-powerful being of the universe didn't desire our good? It would be hopeless. It would be horrible. If that's the case, if, if, if we look at a passage like Jeremiah 32 and say, God desires my greatest good, my highest joy, I have a question for you. Do you want this? Do you really want your good? Do you really want your joy? And if so, what should you do? 
And this takes us to question number four. How can you experience your highest good and greatest joy? And this is intended as a personal question for you. This is not a rhetorical question. This is not a, now we know why this three verses in Mark 12 is so important. This is a personal question for you. This is a question I want you to, I want you to get some fingerprints on it. Um, it needs to get smudged as you turn it over in your hands and look at it. Handle it for yourself. Have you ever noticed how often when someone says, may I see that, their, their hands are already reaching for what you have? That's what I want you to do with this question. How can you experience your greatest good and your highest joy? Highest good, greatest joy. There's a kind of inquisitive exploration of this question I'm looking for. So even those people locked in an in a earthly mindset ask this question. The people around us who are just living for a more generic, they want things to be good and they want to be happy, um, they, they have some version of this question. How do I get that? How do I find happiness? How do I make things, how, how do I live life in a way that is good? But we are asking the deepest version of this question. How can you experience your highest good and greatest joy? And in Mark 12, we have the fullest answer. Jesus says, first, love God with all you are and with all you have. The path to fulfillment, to joy, to what is truly good is, of course, the one is God, the one who is sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving, creator of all, Lord of all. We all loved other things and other people, namely ourselves, more than God. Adam and Eve before us and each one of us have been guilty of loving something or someone else more than God. We may read from 1 John 4 in a bit, and it gives the description of God's loving solution to this in Jesus and his love, his life, his sacrifice, his salvation. We considered earlier the question, is it self-centered of God to command, love me? And after the mental journey I've taken thinking about who God is and who we are and, and God's intention for my life, I would say, of course it is. And that's really good news. Because if God is the only sovereign, infinitely holy, supremely satisfying, perfectly loving, creator of all, Lord of all, master of all, and he loves us, then what is he going to give us? An engraved pen? A nice pair of socks? A gift card to Starbucks? Maybe God will give us some cash because he loves us. Maybe God will give us some power in this world or some comfort. All of those things fade and ultimately will leave us empty. If that God really loves me, what's he going to give me? He's going to give me himself. He's going to give you supreme satisfaction in him. A satisfaction that in that, that 10 million years from now will not have faded a bit. Perfect love that never fails. It is astounding if we stop to think that God loves you so much that he gives you himself. 
that he gives you a, a love relationship with the one who is better than everyone and everything in this world put together. And, and I want to circle back for a moment to an earlier question I asked. Is loving God an obligation or is loving God an affection? Is love for God something we have to do or is love for God something we want to do? And the answer is yes. And I want us to love God with our minds here a bit. I want us to think about not just that it is both, but some of how it is both. Edward John Carnell said this, Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. So what she means is it's more than a must in the sense of a husband feeling like he's obligated to kiss his wife, although it's right for him to love her as her husband. That's right and good. But there's something more needed that will make that marriage life-giving is if he, he just must kiss her because he loves her so much. It's a beautiful blend of good and right obligation and good and right affection. Another illustration I ran across was, suppose a mother rushes to help her terrified child. She acts out of spontaneous love and would maybe even be a little offended by the suggestion that she must help her child in, in that legal sense of obligation or duty. So in one sense, yes, the mother has an obligation. It's right for a mother to care for her child. But she must run to that child who is in distress. Why? Not, not, not merely because, well, she's the legal guardian of the child, so she must do this. But there's so much more than that. She must, she's driven to run to that child because she has that love for her child. So I think about, must we love God? Well, yes, in one sense, we must because he alone is God. He alone is supremely lovely, even. But that's not the whole story. We don't, we don't gather together on Sunday and read the Bible and pray because we feel obligated. That's not... Christianity. That's not oneness with oneness with Christ and oneness in Christ. We must read his word and pray. We must gather as his body, not because we feel obligated, but because we know our souls will be satisfied in him. We that that our that our highest good, our greatest joy is found in God. Which begs the question, is that true of you? I said earlier so many Christians are missing the foundational truth of this passage in Mark 12. Sadly, that's not just out there. It's not just a problem at the First Baptist Church of Springfield. There we go. There's a Springfield in every state as far as I know. So, you know, just the generic out there Christian it's not just a problem there how many times have people close to us accepted an obligation to God but not found him to be that highest good and greatest joy in this life how often has my own life and experience sunk to that I've accepted an obligation to God 
but I've not found him to be the fulfillment of what I need and what I am. If your spiritual life feels like you must read the Bible or you must commit to being a part of the local body of Christ, of gathering together, of praying, well, if your spiritual life feels like that, I'm, I'm scared. If that's your experience, are you missing the point? Are you not aware and experiencing the reality that you were designed and created for a love relationship with the God of the universe. That's your purpose. That's the core of who you are. And the reality is so many of us who would call ourselves Christians actually love this world and tack on Jesus here so that we can have heaven in the next world. What drives me? So easily, the pushing factors in my life can be things like money, prosperity, positions, possessions, ease, health. That sounds like nominal Christianity. Christianity in name. Following Christ means you found something, someone, that is better than anything in this world. And on the path to experiencing our highest joy... Our highest good and greatest I wrote it that way the first time, so now I have to stick to it. Our highest good and greatest joy, we have another command. I want to look at the second command Jesus gives before we close here. Love God with all you are and all you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. How does this go together? This command from Leviticus 19 and Mark 12, in this God, Jesus, says, love your neighbor as yourself. God, Jesus, here, assumes, or maybe accurately, clearly knows, we love ourselves. And many people in our self-esteem-obsessed culture would try to twist this passage and say, Jesus is commanding us to love ourselves. Um, the the logic or, or presentation generally goes something like, you can't love others if we don't love ourselves. So we need to start by loving ourselves. The only problem is that's not what Jesus said. He says, you already love yourself. You want food for yourself. You want clothes for yourself. You want a place to live. You want friends for yourself. You want happiness for yourself. He states it as fact. He doesn't command you love yourself. He just states it as fact that, hey, you notice that about you? Even when we make foolish decisions that are unhealthy for our lives, it's usually rooted in us being convinced that those decisions will, well, maybe they will be good for us, or just, well, that will be enjoyable. It's still out of some form of loving ourselves that even some of those bad decisions are made. And we don't really have time to, to dig into... It's interesting to me that Jesus here doesn't condemn a desire for food and clothes and friends and those types of things. What Jesus says is, look at that. Just as you want those things for yourselves and, and that is innate to you, I'm commanding you to want those things for others and to make sure they have those things. So if your neighbor is without food, help them get some food. If your neighbor is without friends, be a friend to them. And as your neighbor wants happiness, help them find happiness, which takes us back to the first command and the truth where we find the source uh, 
of real joy and goodness is in God. If you truly love your neighbor, what do you want for them? You want their highest good and greatest joy. And where is their highest good and greatest joy found? And so that does mean that there is both the practical and the spiritual underpinning any of those practical actions of love for your neighbor is a desire and a goal that they would see the love of God and come to experience the true good and joy in loving him themselves. And so we have a, we have a circle. How can you experience your highest and greatest, highest good and greatest joy first and foremost by loving God with all you are and all you have turning from yourself and sin and the pursuit of this world loving, seeking, and being satisfied in God and in that relationship with God. And as you love God, the overflow of that is loving the people around you. In the same way that you... In the same way that you need to see that that your... True goodness and true joy in your life comes from loving God and experiencing God and being sold out for him and your life being him. You also then want that for your neighbors and your friends, the people around you. And this spreads to all of life. This becomes your guide in marriage. You live as a husband or a wife to reflect God's love to your spouse. You live to help them find life in God. This becomes your reason for parenting. You live to reflect God's love for your children and to help them find life in God and in loving God. Ultimately, you aren't here. You aren't, you aren't living to make, to make sure they get a good education, get a solid job, and find a great partner. No, while, while we have those, those lesser goals, above all that, under all that, over and above all of that and, and under all that and underpinning all that, you live to help them love a great God. It changes what you do with your children. This becomes the reason for every facet of life. Whoever you are and whatever your station, single or married, young or old, that middle section of age where you don't think you're young or old, student or adult, wherever you go to school or work or whatever you do, you live to love God and love others. That's what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. I'll go ahead and say this. I think we have time. If you want some practical shoe leather on, on living in loving your neighbor, it's interesting to consider the lessons around the verse that Jesus um, pulled into the New Testament from the Old Testament. So he, um, when he said, when he pulled together, love God with all you are and with all you have, and love your neighbor as yourself, he he quotes Leviticus 19, and. I found it interesting to look around in Leviticus 19 and we see some, or, or I found some examples of things that, um, well, that loving my neighbor as myself 
means um, caring for the poor, verse 10, not stealing and not lying in verse 11, to be fair in business dealings in verse 14, also in verse 14, caring for the deaf and the blind, uh, verse 15, dealing justly with all, verse 16, avoiding slander, uh, also in verse 16, not jeopardizing the life of your neighbor. Don't be reckless about your neighbor. And verse 17, harboring hatred against someone. Also in verse 17, um, being willing to speak hard things to your neighbor when necessary for, for good. And verse 18, not taking revenge or bearing a grudge against others. Now, Jesus didn't quote all those verses and pull all those into the New Testament. But that gives you some practical shoe leather on what's it look like to love my neighbor? Leviticus 19, there in just 10 verses. Quite a number of practical things we can take with us. These two commandments from Mark 12 run counter to the world and the value propositions presented all around us. The world says the way to joy and the way to goodness is to love yourself, rebel against even the the idea of a God, live for fullness and stuff and money and earthly relationships, live your life and live your truth. And God says, no. I love you so much that I have made you for so much more than that. So I'm going to close with two questions here this morning. And these are, again, for you to take home with you and, and grapple with and handle in your life. Question number one is, what lesser loves do you need to repent of in order to find your highest good and greatest joy in love for God with all you are and all you have? What lesser loves do you need to repent of in order to find your highest good and greatest joy in love for God with all you are and all you have? So just honestly consider your life and ask, are there things in your life you love or are tempted to love more than God? Or anywhere close even, are there things in your life your love of which is challenging Maybe you don't love them more than God, but they're the ones that keep bumping up against it. And I thought of many things I could list here that are likely candidates, things that in my life have, have taken those slots. It struck me that pretty much all of those things that came to mind weren't necessarily bad things. But none of them are ultimate. And all of them, if pursued instead of God, would leave me empty. So what lesser loves do you need to confess to God? And do I love God more than the good things he gives me? Do I even notice him as the giver and love him far, far more than the gift? Or am I drawn into loving the very gifts that God has given into my life? And the second question what are the what what are practical ways God is calling you to love others as yourself starting this week and with that 
okay, if God is calling you to love others as yourself, what I'm aiming for here is come up with one, two, or three practical, specific things you can do as actions of love. Not forgetting our deepest desire for our neighbors, the people around us, to experience the fullness of joy and the goodness that is only found in loving God. But that doesn't mean that if it's not a witnessing event, you can't put it on your list. Um, what are practical ways you can love others as yourself? Are there steps you need to take in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships with your parents, in your relationships with friends, neighbors, co-workers, in the church? Are there steps to take in those facets of life practical ways to love others as yourself? There are many ways this could go. But start with just a couple practical ways God is calling you to love others. Thank you for your time, your attention. Thank you for your commitment to doing what God calls you to do. Now we have the hard work. Can we have a song, please? <laughs>